Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. Pluto TV never asks for a credit card. You don't even need to sign up to watch. Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. What are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. Download Pluto TV for free on your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation, and anywhere else you stream. For nearly 30 years, Todd Garner has overseen blockbuster films like Con Air, Anger Management, Triple X, 13 Going on 30, and Black Hawk Down. Why are they letting you make these movies? Join Todd as he shares tips and stories from the front lines of producing in Hollywood, right here on The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. There's no way to really tell an impactful story without it being authentic and it coming from some form of a human experience. In movies and in television, people crave connection. People crave stories that speak to them, that they feel they've experienced. And the only way to really be successful in this business is to be able to plumb the depths of those emotions. Being in this business itself lends you to have experiences where things are going well and then suddenly the rug is pulled out from you and your you know your movie falls apart or your actor drops out or the script isn't any good or for some reason the person that was championing your movie got fired but that's such a small myopic emotion to kind of draw from so if you're just drawing from your career and being in the business there's not really a way that it's going to feel authentic to everybody my next guest has an uncanny ability to take the most joyous moments of his life that have suddenly in a moment been ripped apart by tremendous pain and be conscious enough to put those feelings down on paper and then to be strong enough to present them to the world and be authentic and honest about all of the things that he's experiencing. And he is able to articulate it so that we as an audience can go through this journey with him. He's Dan Fogelman. He is the showrunner for This Is Us, and he has written and directed a movie called Life Itself, which opens tomorrow. I feel like this conversation will inspire and hopefully move you, and you need to go see this movie because it is remarkable in the way that it takes you on a ride from the highest highs to the lowest lows. Enjoy. All right, we're here with Dan Fulgeman. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? How was your premiere? My premiere was great. It was great and big and massive, and they're taking photographs of me, and it all makes me uncomfortable, but we survived it's it. It's so great. The movie's great, man. Thank you so I much. saw it. it it's, it's amazing. And it comes out September 21st. September 21st. Which will be, this is going to air, and it'll be tomorrow. Oh, great. This air. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was amazing. And I've read a ton about you and about the movie, and we have a lot of mutual friends and a lot to talk sure. about. But one of the things that I want to, really want to talk to you about is just the authenticity of your writing and the, uh, how much of yourself you put into all of your writing. I mean, sort of since the beginning, but certainly these last few things. Yeah. Um, and especially this movie I know is so important to you because it comes from tragedy and triumph. And, yeah. And I have the same thing. Like, I had a tragedy that really pivoted my career to just make sure that I just want to make people happy sure. and make people feel things. And I know that, that you've said that many, many, many times. But I want to start off because um, you grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. We moved around a lot. So I actually grew up in um, – I grew up partially in Pittsburgh. Uh, I was born in Baltimore, grew up in Pittsburgh till about third grade, and then moved a couple of times and then settled for high school years and middle school years in New Jersey. When did you catch the bug of being a writer? You know, I I fell into this a little bit. I uh, 
I never really did. I moved out I, at about 20 years old. I had finished school a little bit early, college, and uh, I had a, I'd broken up with a girlfriend, and I just got in my mom's old car and drove out to California with no real plan. I, uh, I wanted to do – I didn't want to have a nine-to-five job. I'd always right. loved film and television, but I didn't really plan on being a screenwriter in any way. What did you study in college? I was an English major. Uh, I had always written stuff. I thought maybe at one point I would try and be a novelist. I thought at one point in my life maybe I would try and be like a, That's very romantic. a sports writer. <laughs> well, that's um, uh, but yeah, screen. I had never written or read a screenplay when I moved out here. And it's interesting that your short, your first thing on your IMDb, your short is called Shit Happens. Yeah. I don't which, by the way, could be the title of everything you've written since. It's true. <laughs> it's, my fr- it's perfect. My first thing, which is not actually on there, not credited, uh, I did after I started writing screenplays. I was like, maybe I'll make something, a short film. And people were at the time making those spoof films. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember. So I did one called The Soprano Witzes. <laughs> and it was it was uh, Jewish Sopranos. And it was, it was eight minutes long. It was hysterical. We get, yeah. And all of your writing obviously has a lot of your family in it between Guilt Trip and sure. your, all your series and then the neighbors. And so what um, what was the first thing that you actually wrote that you sold? The first thing I wrote that I sold, um, I, well, I had a really weird path that I'm sometimes afraid to talk about because I think <laughs> we got to talk I, about but it. But I think, but I think it sometimes um, can almost seem like it, 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 it could read that it's very easy to make it in this business, mm-hmm. which it's clearly not, or that I'm more talented than I am. It was a kind of a luck of a draw moment. Um, I wrote, I wrote a screenplay about my bar mitzvah. It was a Wonder Year style bar mitzvah screenplay that Danny Greenberg, my eight Jewish agent identified with and responded to but it was a is he still a, your agent today? still my agent He's and my best the best and my manager Erin Brown uh, was the first person to read it she was a junior manager at the time my roommate brought it to her at work she loved it gave it to other people gave it to Danny and other agents and I suddenly had agents I was never able to sell the script and never sold and off of that script um, that script got sent to Pixar oh, wow. by Erin and uh, who was looking for a young writer to come in for two weeks. That's how they did it at the time with opportunity to extend. And that was cars. Wow. And so my first screenplay didn't sell. And my second screenplay was cars. What was the pitch that they gave you on cars? There was no pitch. I sat in a room like we're sitting in now at a big, long conference table. There were about 15 people. They, I uh, apparently, thank you. They brought in, um, maybe 10 or 15 writers up all kind of like probably not famous, not well-known, not even accomplished writers. And you sit in a conference room, you have not read anything. All you know is that it's a movie about cars. So you assume it's talking cars because it's Pixar. Uh, and I interviewed with John Lasseter and I think Steve Jobs was in and out there. Uh, Joe Ramph who wound up passing away, but was a real mentor and big figure up there and a bunch of other people. And we just kind of talked. We talked about the screenplay that they had read, told them about my life. And I got the call later that day that I was the guy. I signed a two week contract uh, and that got extended about 50 times. And I I left, I stayed up there for about a year and a half. And that's amazing. And so did you, did they pitch it to you as it's a road trip, you know, a nostalgic road trip across country? Not at that first meeting. The first meeting was a personality litmus test, I think, and a sensibility litmus test. How did I get along with John? How did, how did the thing fit? And probably it would have been a no harm, no foul thing. If it didn't work out in two weeks, they would have let me go. And so, but I knew nothing. I mean, it it was at the point where I was like, so I have a car. I mean, I didn't know what to talk, <laughs> what to talk about. I've driven before. I've driven. Yeah. And uh, I've, seen, no, I've seen animated movies. No, but only when I got it. And that had been long in motion. They had Bibles and giant screenplays and um, that the 200 pages. And so once I got the job, then I was caught up to speed. Had you already taken the trip with your mom that became the guilt trip? No, that came after the fact. <laughs> 
Wait, explain to me how the yeah. idea of this comes up. So you went from New Jersey to Vegas. Vegas. Uh, in the film, they go Jersey to San Francisco. But yeah, you know, my mom. Uh, God, it's been a while since I've talked. It was an interesting film because the film kind of came and went, and it was kind of poor, like poorly critically received, and it just didn't do anything. And but it was such a personal part of my life uh, after my mom had passed away. So it's, I'm almost like going back in time to remember the story. But the story basically was. Uh, in my, when I was about 30 years old, um, my mom kind of revealed to me, I I had a meeting with a bunch of executives, female executives, and I was single at the time. And they were, I was explaining that I had a series of just kind of like whatever relationships and they were trying to break down what was wrong with me. And it was this very weird. (laughs) What's wrong with you? (laughs) What's wrong with me and why I can't be in a, uh, like a stable relationship. In LA. In LA. As a screenwriter. In Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. And so I (laughs) I think that's probably it. (laughs) Yeah. So it became like a. It was haunting, and I left the meeting, and my mom had called, and I was like, wow, I just had this crazy meeting. These guys were telling me X and Y and Z is wrong with me, and my mom says, that's not what's wrong with you. Do you want to know what's wrong with you? And she proceeded to tell me a story, long story short, which is uh, she had had this kind of great fleeting love in her life that I had never known about, and uh, the guy never liked her as much as she liked him. And uh, not like she named me after the guy, but she always had such a positive uh, impression of the guy because he was a kind guy. And she, that she, it always made her like the name Danny. And so uh, that was a name that stuck out for her. And she says, I've been cursed with his same commitment issues. Oh, wow. And so uh, the movie, born, <laughs> Thank you, Mom. <laughs> born off of that story that happened on the phone walking away from the Universal lot, I wrote a movie about a guy who hears this story from his mom and takes her on a cross-country road trip to reunite with the guy. Oh, wow. And so, and his namesake. It was exaggerated in real life. I'm not exactly named after right. the guy. It was more anecdotal. But uh, so, yeah. So to do it, I, my mom and I popped in a car and we drove We drove cross country. I took notes the entire time. Mm-hmm. And then I turned it into a film. Well, that's the thing about your writing and everything you do is so authentic. Well, and again, you. just even to having the idea of taking your mom cross country and you talk pretty extensively about when your mom passed away, that just even the whole process of it how you yeah. processed it and and how you went through it was so personal and you kept even in your mind going oh that would be oh, that's a moment that's that's a moment that's a moment that and so it really comes from an authentic place in everything you do i hope so i mean that's the battle i mean i'm better at writing about it and stepping outside of myself and analytic, analytically being really honest about it. There is a part of me that will never get purely tapped into into the really sad stuff. I, I tried to go to therapy once uh, after my mom had passed away because it had been pretty traumatic. And I felt I always felt like um, in person, I w- it was hard for me. I, I felt like I was putting on a performance for this woman who I was sitting in a chair and, and I, it was it, it never felt real to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I write stuff, it's probably romanticized. Um, you know, I, I wrote a film about a guy who I, I actively talk about in this film. Oscar Isaac loves his wife, his Olivia Wilde's character, the way I love my wife. At the same point, I was at a premiere last night of the film. It's stressful for me. I'm getting photographed. I have eight million responsibilities. I'm sharp with my wife. I'm not kind to my wife. I'm like, I'm not always writing that stuff, right. you know. And so, I think there's a nice sheen on it sometimes. But I do try and tap into the stuff that I have a hard time talking about or dealing with interpersonally. Well, the, the uh, uh, another big theme in your writing, not not necessarily in the animated stuff, but certainly in in life itself, and this is us, is just the sudden moment of everything shifting. Yeah. Positively and negatively. Because yeah. I had the same ex- experience in what happened to me and my wife where you're just going along with your life and then shit happens, yep. <laughs> to, quote, yeah. to quote your short. Yeah. And uh, 
just that that's the thing that's so great about your it's almost like you're like, <laughs> like the M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> of like these romantic yeah. romanticized dramedies because yeah. there's and I won't give it away but there's a, such a big twist there's a bu- bunch of twists yeah, in, yeah. Your, in your movie for sure but there's a, the, late in the movie there's such a big twist yeah. when things come together so when you're writing are you and and I and I there's a I know that you're yeah, that um, this is us was a was a broken yep. feature that was called thirty six at the time originally were, yeah were the were all the siblings thirty six which is why you called that 36? that was uh, the original working title that I always hated uh, <laughs> I hated it but. Uh, I had done five consecutive projects because I don't sell projects as pitches anymore. I won't set up a project and hope it gets made. I write my scripts and then sell them to someone who wants to make it. Well, because your stuff is – I mean, this is the thing. I know you had a struggle selling your movie to studios because your stuff is so execution dependent. Right. Like, it's very tough to pitch your movie. Yeah, your, you can. Because it's, like, it's all, about, all about doing it. And I, I tell writers all the time when, you know, I, we, we generate ideas, yep. we, we – we, partner with writers and then we try to get them as far down the line as we can to sell them and get them made sure and it, it, it unless you're pitching like oh you know it's anger management it's similar exactly. as a you know yep. jack nicholson is an anger man- yep. management coach the stuff you're writing is so personal and and you're such a good writer and the dialogue is so great that that i you would have to right i mean it'd be tough for you to pitch your movie it would be impossible we'd have to do it in real time almost. Yeah, yeah and i remember when I, the thing that the game changer for me the, the reason i was saying it was because i kept writing all these scripts that were getting made but i hated putting titles on them so right. i had all these movies and tv shows getting made that were the untitled dan fullman poster <laughs> projects i have udf po- those yellow signs all over right. my office and so i put a temp title on this is us originally that i hated just because i didn't want to have to but where the characters 36 was that they the were all turning 36 and and your sister, obviously, the Kate is yep. based on your sister. Are you twins? No, no, that was just a no. We're con- two years apart. Um, so yeah, I wanted to kind of attack that a kind of version of those characters, a version of the relationship. I don't look like Justin Hartley. I'm not a famous actor, but I live in Hollywood in this heightened world, and I have a sister who's battled weight issues and is a kind of normal person. So I wanted to. I thought, what if they were twins? You know, what if? You know, I just kept extrapolating from there. And in, and in, in terms of your authenticity, also on your show, you have an African American adoption specialist, yep. so that you're being authentic to both what your sister goes through and also for this adoption issue. Again, going back to the authenticity of your writing, we try and get it right. I mean, we we explore a lot of issues in the show. We try to explore even in the film and the show. We try and I try and bring people in who. I, I, I'm from the adage of a kind of write what you know, and that's what I'm, I'm constantly writing about people and people I know and relationships I know. But I think you can also write about things you don't know if you get to know them really well. Mm-hmm. And so we bring in experts on all fields. It's not always me. Sometimes I'm, my schedule is too busy, but my writers, like we're dealing a lot this season on the show with um, pregnancy, uh, a couple trying to get pregnant, struggling, failing, having different ways of doing it. And we have met with umpteen amount of doctors, people who have been through the experience. And then you sit with somebody who's been through the experience and they tell the anecdote. They tell the story of their husband has to go jerk off in another room to give the sperm sample to the doctor. And there's uh, only like one old porn magazine in the thing he's getting. So he goes out and he just says, F- it. Like, it's like it's 2018. And he just goes to the front desk. And he's like, can I have your Wi-Fi password? <laughs> he's got his phone out. They give him the Wi-Fi password. He goes back in the room. 
and realizes the password isn't right. It has to go back out a second <laughs> time to get the new one. So, but there's a couple telling you their heartbreaking, kind of tragic or beautiful story, but they're right. also in the midst of it. Is yes. that that becomes a scene in This Is Us right. very clearly? Right. And so that's not an experience I've lived, but it's an experience I'm hearing about from a person who's lived it. So writing, I always feel that write what you know starts expanding that way if you just listen to people and, and hear people's stories. Right. And in, and so. You've t- talked about writing this movie and just sitting down and putting on Bob Dylan and starting to yep. write without an idea. Yep. I, I'm not totally buying that. It is the case. But just what when you sat down, you had no idea what you were going to write. You just said, I, I need to write something? Or yeah. I had, walk me through the process. Yeah. I mean, I have an unusual process, again, that I don't recommend for everybody. <laughs> and I write infrequently. I write, um, I write infrequently. I write in bursts. Uh, so I will think about an idea or think about I have to write an episode of the show. I have to write a new pilot. I, it's time for me to write a new film. I'm feeling the craving. And then I go kind of away for a week or two and write the whole thing. Oh, wow. And for me, that's become a way of I mean, I get neurotic. I, I'm, I'm driven and I'm ambitious. And so when I am not writing every day, but I'm feeling like I should be, it just means that every day I'm feeling like shit about myself. So I developed a process where I compartmentalize because I have a busy life and I'm making things and I try and be a normal human being. So I can say like, I'm not writing this week. I'm not writing next week. But when I go block out those two weeks, I'm going to write my next film. Okay. And so that works for me. Um, sometimes I had crazy stupid love was the one that was the game changer for me because I had made a but I had made three animated films that were very successful. I was 30 years old, 33 years old. I was considered successful. I was starting to make a fair amount of money, but like I did, and I'd made some live action movies, but they hadn't quite landed. Like Fred Claus. Yeah, there there were some that had turned out badly. There were some that I still saw the beauty in, but like they hadn't been well received or really, you know, that watched. I hadn't had the one that cut through yet, and so I had written the first ten pages of Crazy Stupid Love with no plan. A bunch of characters. It start. I had this idea of a scene of a guy thinking, "What does he want to order for dinner?" And his wife is trying to tell him she wants a divorce. You know, <laughs> and then a babysitter's in love. The boy's in love with the babysitter. The babysitter's in love with the father. You know, there's a stud somewhere in love with somebody else. And that was it. I didn't have a plan. I wrote the ten pages. I gave it to my wife, and then I sat on it for like months. And I kept thinking about it in the back of my head. I think I started thinking like, "What if she was his daughter?" And then I finally, I was saying to my wife, like, I, I need to write something. I need to go away and write something, do one of my two-week trips. And she said, I think you should go finish whatever those 10 pages are going to be. Was it called Crazy Stupid Love then? It was not, you don't title it. It was called Untitled, Dan- <laughs> Untitled Danfo. Until like a week before it opened, we had no, or until the marketing started, well, that's, we had no title. It's so interesting about your titles because it, you re- it really is true. Because you think about like this, this is us and life itself, that they feel like a similar yeah. Title almost and crazy stupid love also in that same yeah. thing because you you're not writing high concept stuff. No. I mean, Tangled and yep. Cars and your animated stuff yep. was guilt trip for to a certain degree yep. is a pretty high concept. But all your rest of your stuff is so just human yeah. and about people. It's really hard to put titles on those things. It is, and you know, crazy stupid love. After we landed on it, it was my idea, and I pushed for it with the directors who were the best guys. And then once we had done it, it was announced. We were like, this was such a f-ing mistake. And people would be like, what's the name of your movie? All the I mean, commas. Yeah, and, and you can, I mean, you can imagine it now. Now it's like this movie that people love. Right. And it's kind of landed in our lexicon. But like, I mean, your movie's coming out. Which is your movie? And you're like, crazy, stupid love. And it's embarrassing. And it was like, it sounded embarrassing. And like, we were just like, what, crazy. And then people would go, uh, stupid love. And then I remember my low point. I felt like I finally had a really good movie live action that like people were going to really <laughs> respond to. And I remember out my window of my office, the marketing campaign was like, it was like, this is crazy. This is stupid. This is love. So the billboard right in front of my office just said, this is stupid. 
<laughs> we, we talk about this all the time because I have people that I like. We develop scripts and they have the the like the title would be like the good movie. Yeah, and I'm like, you don't want to title no, that because no. the first review is going to be like, well, ironically, it, I, this is not oh, a God. good movie. There's no when you get into that game, by the way. Like you're like, there's no win ever on a title. Right. But I just never can forget that. Like. I'm staring out my window at Ryan Gosling, and it just says, "This is stupid." <laughs> and I was like, "I don't know. Maybe I. Maybe this isn't going to happen for me." <laughs> and, <laughs> what is it? What is the process? What is the different process for people that may not know between animating and animation writing yeah. and live action writing? Like, because I always I've never made an animated movie, yeah. so I always picture animation writing like a team thing more like theater like you're kind of all like putting on a show sure. and putting it up and you know doing a bunch of previews and I know, I know you preview your movies a lot and yeah. we're going to get to that but does, and maybe that comes from animation of just throwing it up seeing it throwing it up seeing it like theater you like theater it's a very I mean uh, my experience has always been driven um, it was driven very intensely by one guy John Lasseter and Pixar so and then over at Disney so that my process I don't know if I speak universally for the animation process or what I've done but even mine have had different flows in animation it's never I never had the experience on Cars or Bolt where I sat down and write a script from page 1 to 100 you're writing scenes and then so what typically happens is you write a scene you bring it into a group of guys and girls who are storyboard artists you work the scene um, with them they board it in rough 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 sketches um, then they pitch it to you with the sketches. Then you give adjustments. Then it goes into editorial. And those little sketches are basically edited on an Avid machine. And I and the other storyboard artists will each get assigned a voice throughout the movie or somebody in the studio, somebody that works at Pixar or Disney. And you put it up scene by scene and then act by act and then the entire movie. In you basically can watch it. It's temporary voices. It's me doing Owen Wilson like this, you <laughs> yeah. know? And it's never as good as the film's going to be and there's no animation, no expensive animation. And you keep watching scenes and then the whole movie like that. And then you okay, you go, okay, this is working, this is working, this is working. All the rest of it's not. Let's scrap the rest of it. Let's rework the third act. Let's lose that character, blah, blah, blah. So it's a little bit. And then only when you start feeling like, A, the time crunch, but B, the movie is starting to work in that st- in that form, that's when you start the animation process. You start bringing in Owen Wilson, you know, and the famous actors to do the actual voiceover. So it's almost like what I always describe it to people and why these animated films are often so good and why it's crazy to me when they're not. It's like imagine shooting your full film and then screening it, getting notes, thinking about it, and then saying, okay, I want to go reshoot it all but keep the stuff I liked, and then doing that over and over and over and over again until you have a perfect movie. Does that bleed into your writing now? Um, No, because frankly, I never completely appreciated the process. For me on Cars specifically – it was I was learning how to write a screenplay. I was faking it a little bit. So it was such a great opportunity to go, oh, I see. My writing works that way, but it doesn't work when I do that. It gets a little too cute even for a tow truck when I go that far. <laughs> right. But when I do So it was just – I think it informed me subconsciously. For me, as I got into the later films, when I came on to Tangled, that was a film that had been going for a decade. And it needed to get up. And running, and I was brought in. Directors I'd done other films with had, were brought in, and I was very much of the mind of like, let me write the entire script right now, mm-hmm. quickly. 
and I know we'll need, you guys will need to start working on scenes, and then things will adjust and be explored and found by the storyboard artists. But we need to get a whole pass through this script. Like that's like, and it wound up that was the quickest turnover on an animation project I read. We like we turned that one over in like a year. Um, after like a decade of doing it. But so everyone's different, but you do learn quite a bit about rewriting. So my process now when I write a live action, I don't rewrite a lot. When I finish a script, that's pretty much the script. The actors will come in and have notes and you would work with the actors to adjust things. But um, like life itself, my completed first draft is almost word for word what's the, what the movie is. My process is when I sit down every morning, I write, let's call it 12 pages a day. And then each time I pick up on page 13 on day two I go back and work and work and work those first 12 pages before I continue on to page 13 and then I go page 13 to 20 that day I still go back to page one and I work page one to 20 you know and then I go page 20 to 28 the next day I still go back to page one rework it by day four I stop. I start like moving, starting my process on page fifteen. I see sliding, yeah, and, and like so that because it's now been four days where I've been revising and cutting and and tra- and so it keeps building that way. So that by the time I get to the end, I'm pretty much done, and that's the script. Hey, before we keep going, let's talk about True Car. Are you looking for a new car? Do you know how to navigate where you're looking for? MSRP, invoice price, list price, dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. You just want a price that means something. Introducing True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. True Car shows you what other people paid for that same car you want. And your certified dealers know this so they can set their true price competitively so they can win your business. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. The King of Celebrity Gossip is now on Podcast One. Kim Kardashian, I think she's nice, but obnoxious and annoying. Check out the Perez Hilton Podcast with Chris Booker each week to get your fill on the latest news in show business and beyond. And nothing is off the table. I think he should take her last name when they get married. He's already her b****. He should just be her officially. Check out the Perez Hilton Podcast every week on Podcast One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. This is the Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. I read somewhere that in in This Is Us, when you figured out what the ending was, or mm-hmm. the, or the twist maybe in yeah. the second episode, then you knew you had a TV show, and you famously now said much to. All, I'm a giant fan, by the way. Thank you. And you shoot on the Paramount lot, and yeah. I met with all your actors. They're the best. Yeah, and so you know the ending. Yeah. Did you did you know the ending of um, Life Itself? Pretty much, I knew. Life itself was a strange one in that I just was writing and it, it, I was writing and just letting it kind of come to me. It's amazing because of how the interwoven stories work. Yeah. I, the reason why I said I was skeptical yeah. is I would have thought you had the ending and then you worked backwards. I didn't. And what's interesting is uh, on that particular film, it was a very spiritual like writing experience for me. And I'm not a very spiritual guy where I just – I Crazy Stupid Love, I knew that the end of the film was going to be – the reveal that Emma Stone is Carell's daughter who's been dating Gosling and you know and that that it all comes together in this hijink scene and then it, the, uh, there's an epilogue and so I always knew I was working towards that 
this was like different. This one I wrote very slowly over the course of a year, scene by scene. That same process, going page one to ten, and then back to page one and continuing for it. But it took me quite a long time, and it just revealed itself to me. And at the end, I was like, "That's how it comes together." And then, literally, I was at a uh, bookstore with my wife, and I was I had been using Bob Dylan music the entire time in the film simply as a because I'd always liked the album, but primarily because it came on my iTunes when I started writing the film, and I kept going back to it, and. I knew what, I started getting a sense of like how the movie plot wise was going to end. I had this idea of a scene in my head that's like the penultimate, the, ulti- the final scene of the movie between a mother and child that was like the whole movie to me and my my most important thing. But I was struggling to figure out like I've been using all this Bob Dylan and I love it, but I'm not quite getting like what the point of the Bob Dylan was yet. Right. And I've just been writing it and I'm pleased with how it's all working, but it needs to have a point. And I'm in a bookstore. And I see in the middle table, like a staff pick section, and there's an anthology of Bob Dylan criticism. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, I've got 10 pages left to write. And that's the one thing looming in my brain, how that kind of comes together. And I open it up to the album I've been using throughout the film. And this critic is bashing the song Make You Feel My Love, saying it's the lone wart on this album because it's the only uh, it's the only populist love song in this otherwise perfectly sparse, bleak, withholding album that that, that was perfectly sad, and 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 then this 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 one populist love song ruined it. And I was like, holy sh! I was like, that's the movie. Right. I mean, that's the movie is finding the love song in the middle of a lot of yeah. really sad stuff. And I literally, it was Valentine's Day when I was with my wife. I said, we have to go home. I'm, I got to go finish the <laughs> screenplay. And uh, and so that was like, so a lot of things just happened yeah. on that one. And then it finished, and I recognized that it was like, like interestingly structured. And wow, this really all felt preordained. But it came out of me in a really weird that's way great. that was not planned. Yeah, that's amazing. And music is so important to you. Yeah, why? I think it's the closest thing we have to, um, you know, a book or a film or a poem. You have to kind of get from beginning, middle, and end to really be fully affected by it. Whereas you can push play on a on a on a CD or whatever <laughs> on, <laughs> on your iPod on a cassette. <laughs> you can you can instantly listen to a song and have a feeling. Right. Instantly, you could feel sad, like angry, pumped up. Um, nothing else can really quite do that. You know, Do you always write with music? I tend to write with a lot of music. I tend to like I'll lock into an album. Sometimes I like the ritual of putting on a record player because it allows me to uh, stand up, turn the record player over. You know what I mean? Gives right. me a break from the sitting. And uh, I'll tend to recur the same like kind of artisan album a lot because it kind of keeps you in that same kind of zone. And obviously your first directing um, gig – was a script that you wrote, which is all about the movie. But I mean, all about the music business. Yeah. So, so it's obviously clearly important to you. And certain artists like Lennon and the Beatles sure. and Dylan are obviously, even though you're from New Jersey, you would think the boss would be yeah, the guy. But he's, okay. he's next. <laughs> the boss is. Have you seen his show? And yeah, you, yes. Isn't it the most incredible thing you've ever seen? Uh, amazing. Yeah. And, and I've seen. And I made the had the tragic misfortune of going to the Tom Joad show. Oh wow, Joad is that? How you say yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And it was not it was slow. It was very slow. Yeah, <laughs> he learned slow. from that. Yeah, but um, I saw the River Tour, which was. Have you? Did you go to that one? I had. I've been to a, a few of but his concerts. I've but. never seen anything like it. The River Tour, Bruce Springsteen, and it's it's not the my go to Springsteen album. It's a great album. Right. 
and I didn't realize he was just going to play the album from start to finish. And you're like, okay, this is cool. But my wife, it was her first Springsteen concert. She had gotten us like front row seats for my 40th birthday. It was very sweet. And I'm like, this is, she's like, when's he going to play Born in the U.S.? <laughs> and, uh, he, and, uh, and he the, won't. He like, doesn't care. Like then the Tom Joe thing, I'm like, yeah. just one, man. Yeah. Just bring Clarence up for well, one. Just the, please, Well, please. The, the amazing part of the River Tour was he plays the whole album, The River. It's two and a half hours. And you just go with it. You're like, you know what? This is awesome. And it's great. And what a great album. And I love that he loves it. He then finishes it. And then he did a full concert of his greatest hits immediately following it. It was a four and a half hour show. Oh I've never seen anything like Amazing. it. And he kept screaming at the crowd as it was nearing the end because he was just dumping butters or bucket, buckets of water over his head. And he's like, do you have one more in you? And the crowd's going crazy. I'm like, this guy's going to drop dead <laughs> on stage. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Marty Bo and our mutual friend is trying to get him to watch the film, actually. Uh, uh, it's amazing. So... You you moved from being a writer to director yep. on this on this on Danny Collins. Why why that movie? Um, and why why direct? Um, I'm. It's a really good question because I'm not I'm not a director by trade. It's not something that drives me. I, I'm a writer. I think more than I'm a director. I direct because certain stories. I want to be the one to tell the story. Um, I. In television, I have never directed my own television. But you're show. the producer, so you're and I get the to boss be. I get. I get the final edit, and I'm the boss. And to me, that's equally important to picking lenses and shooting. Um, with the, I'd always wanted to do it. Um, I had on that particular film. It felt like it was time for me to see what I could do if I if I did it all on my own. I, there was something about the story of this man. The real life story I had read on the internet was basically the story of a man who. Um, a 60-year-old folk musician who has led a small but preserved, like, uh, well-curated musical career um, finds out that in that the 40 years earlier he had done an interview uh, for a local music magazine in London where he said he was worried about what would happen if he ever became famous and how it would affect his art. And unbeknownst to him, uh, John Lennon read that article and wrote him a letter that never got delivered saying, um, "Don't, don't worry about you know, only you can, can corrupt yourself. Fame doesn't have to corrupt you. Trust me, I've been famous. I've been rich. And you control like your destiny and your art. He never got the letter, and in in real life, he's remained a kind of really lovely guy who's had a small but stable musical career. But I couldn't stop thinking about what if the guy had sold out? What if he had become a musician, he a showman that he was not proud of? And what if he got this letter and realized it all could have been stopped if this letter from his hero had just been received? So there was something about the nature of that. That made me say, like, I really want to tell that story. I want to be the person in control of it. Mm-hmm. And then, and I'd written it. The other part of it, which I don't think I would have directed it, was I wrote it picturing Pacino, and I wanted to do a movie where Al got to be like really good, good, and uh, and he wanted to do it, and I was like, I'm in. Well, that's great. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of interviews with your actors, just at, both on the TV show and in the movie, just how much they love you, mm-hmm. and and could not be more complimentary. Of you, and the reason why is they trust you, yeah, and they realize that you're an authentic person, and your words mean something. And I find it uh, a lot. We talk about trust in in here, and and I think it's the most important thing. And Olivia was talking about she she was hoping her set was going to be yeah, like your nice. set, and she, she and so you, and so. What do you do on set? Like, what what is the feeling on set, both as a producer and a, and a director, and and how do you make the actors feel comfortable and the crew feel comfortable so that they want to come to work every day? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a uh, like a lot of people have the no asshole policy. Um, that's definitely a thing for me. Like, if somebody's like causing problems, like they're not going to fit in on one of my my shows or or films. Um, I don't know. I 
I think what we get to do for a living is a pretty fun, exciting thing. It seems crazy to me that that what the way my sets are isn't the norm, and that so often they're terrifying, and the directors are. It's stressful, you know. And I understand, and I, I, I'm not perfect. I yell and I get frustrated, and you know what I mean. I'm cursing under my breath, but I try and be nice to everybody. Um, it, it's amazing when people. It's amazing how little it takes to make people be feel trust and to to be happy at work. I try and make an effort, and it's not I don't have to make an effort to do it because I feel it. I write notes to my crew of my TV show, many of whom I see once every four weeks because I don't get to set anymore. But I try and write out emails when I'm proud of an episode, when I'm proud of the work, and you'll be you'd be surprised how how much the taking that time to write a personal note to everybody means you'd be surprised with actors i find especially with movie stars our most famous i've been blessed to work with the most famous the most beautiful it's a really exposing thing sitting on camera putting yourself out there even if that's what you do for a living not knowing how anything's coming off feeling people filming you and not knowing your hands isn't your your performance is in the hands of somebody else and it could be really embarrassing for you if it's 100 percent. i mean i as a producer yeah I'm in awe of them yeah. and so respectful of yeah. actors because they're the ones that are up there yeah. and they're the ones who can really be left twisting in the wind totally. if, if you're not protecting them. I could never do it. Totally. And, and, I couldn't. And I saw an interview where you said you couldn't do it I either. Could, I could not. So I feel a kinship with you in that. I, I mean, my best friend from high school and best man at each other's wedding, he watches every time I'm doing an interview. He is obsessed with it. He breaks it down like this is a Pruder film. <laughs> And he sends it to me, and he like he, he like draws arrows on it because he loves how twitchy I am, and I don't know where to put my hands and what direction to look at and how to cross my legs. Like it's a really uncomfortable experience, it even is. for a professional. So my thing with actors, I'm lucky I get to work with all these great actors, is make them feel confident, make them feel comfortable, and more than anything, your job. I've heard stories of famous directors who are going and giving line readings and saying, "Just say this. Look at the lens." That it's not how I do it. My thing is. I'm blessed to work with all these talented people. My big thing directing is I go up to them, I go, hey, I want to let you know, like, I'm going next into your close-up. Right now we're in a really wide angle. Like, you don't have to do too much. I just want to – I'm going to run the scene twice through without even really stopping. If you need anything, let me know. And then we're going to get into coverage. I'm going to start with you. Then I'm going to go to Oscar. We're going to start with your close-up because I don't want to blow you out unless that doesn't work for you. Like, that stuff, it's all it is, right? And then they're comfortable. They're They're not sitting there on top of worrying about how they look. Is their hair funny? Is their makeup right? It, do they come off bad? Right. They're actually going, okay, I know exactly what's going on. He's aware of it. You and know? why not? And why not tell them that? I don't, I mean, I don't it, know. The, to keep somebody in the dark and just keep moving quickly and be like, just act is, yeah. is not, a, not a way to do it. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about that. So I'm going to talk about that because I found this really fascinating and I want to really get into it, which is you said or you, I mean, might have heard it or read it that a lot of people passed on this script. Um, no, you know, it's funny. That got reported somehow. It's a strange world we live in. It wasn't, not, not, wasn't the case, actually. Um, it, someone picked that up somewhere. And I, it, somebody else asked me that, and I thought they were... Did, yeah, yeah, I read it somewhere. Yeah, so yeah. I, the reason why I was fascinated with yep. it is because, obviously, Amazon is releasing it. Yeah. And you, you independently financed this yep. movie, and then you had a lot of previews and a lot of screenings, and then it got a lot of momentum, yep. and Amazon picked it up. But the reason why I was interested in that, and, and obviously sure. we're, we're clearing the air here, is... How great the actors are in the movie, and ev- and this is reported that every actor that read the script was like, "Holy shit, I got to do this!" Yeah. Like, this is the most amazing writing. And I do find, and maybe it wasn't true on this movie necessarily, but I do find that buyers and actors 
sometimes completely have different needs of, of, of things. And so selling something is completely different than getting actors to commit. True. And I'll tell you, on this film, it's not that nobody – it's not that it, – it's neither right nor wrong that people either passed on the script or didn't. Um, the film – I wrote the film uh, and a bunch of places, like kind of smaller places because it was going to be an independent movie, wanted to make it. And then somebody like the I chose Film Nation, the place that financed it, and the producers, and we just kind of went and make it. So there wasn't even a process of pass or not pass on it. It just kind of went to the people who were going to finance it, and we made it. I think if I know a hundred, hundred thousand percent that if we had tried to set this movie up at Warner Brothers and Paramount and everything as a script, it would never have gotten made. It would have gotten passed on. I'm right. sure because. It, as we're finding right now in releasing this film, because we're releasing the film wide, which I never would have expected, it's a challenge to release this film wide. Yeah. The plot is indescribable. Like, you cannot pitch the plot of the movie. And it's not because it's so highbrow. It's literally to pitch the plot would be to spoil the entire film. That is the problem. With selling it. We can't cut. We, we can't. We're, it's borderline impossible to cut a coherent 30-second spot that tells you what the movie is about. So you wind up leaning on platitudes. It's about life. It's about yeah. people, which can seem soft. And feeling. I and mean, feeling. they've done a really good job actually selling great. it. Your trailer was amazing yeah. too, which is yeah. just giving you a feeling, giving you a feeling. of what you're going to feel in the movie. Yeah. And by being vague, not giving you the plot so as you can enjoy the plot as yeah. you watch it. I think they've done a really good job. But they have. They've been, they've been fantastic. We'll see how that translates into a wide release of a, of a film. Um, because, you know, it's much easier to make a trailer with a big Kevin Hart blow at the end sure. of it when you want to make $40 million on your opening yeah. opening weekend. But they've been amazing. But um, so, yeah, I think it would have been passed on quite a bit. Actors really responded to it. Um, I got kind of my first choices of actors. And everybody's so great. It's, yeah, Antonio it's Banderas is just, Yeah, he's tremendous. I mean, uh, everybody's great. Oscar's yeah, obviously yeah. amazing. Olivia's amazing. But Antonio Banderas is really a surprise. Yeah, because you haven't seen him do this in, in, a, no. in a long time, if ever. And it's so nice. He's... He's my my best friend emailed me because he saw the movie last night. He's like, "How the hell does that guy? St- he must be eighty years old." I'm amazing. like, "He's not." How he looks amazing. He looks incredible. It's insane. And what's great about just the writing and the way you uh, do his character without giving yep. anything away is you do sort of want to villainize him, and yep. then he's so human, and, and so vulnerable, and you bring everything like the movie, yep. which is which is obviously the, in the title is it you know all of those complexities is really a testament well, to your writing it's, and directing. It, it's it's a testament to great. There's two moments in the film because now I've been screening a lot and I've never had anything. I mean, we've had an interesting experience because we premiered in Toronto. I've never had a film that or a project, frankly, even including the show that plays like this movie plays to a group of people. Like I've never kind oh. of experienced it. And um, it is a, you said you've said many times it's a roller coaster. Right? A, it, it is very you, much a roller coaster. I, yeah, right? and and people who are seeing the movie in theaters are going, I've never quite seen that before in a no. theater. And. Uh, we had this strange experience in Toronto where we premiered in Toronto and the seven like kind of uh, institutional like movie critics who were there not only like came out after it viciously, but it, it was so confounding to a group of people, all of whom have been doing this for a living and kind of know our warts and otherwise mm-hmm. because we have been showing this film to the fanciest of filmmakers, the Warren Beatty's on down. Mm-hmm critics and audiences and the reaction has been so strong that unanimously seven critics who were in Toronto came after it so viciously they're coming after me somehow in the television show and the sentiment of it I think I think no, look I don't, yeah. I don't I don't know but I experience it a lot yeah and I think that the critics especially yeah. especially they 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 hate anything that moves them in a way that they feel that they've been moved purposefully. Yeah. So like comedies 
piss them off. Yeah. Because oh, you made me laugh. Big deal. And and they and I've been in audiences where just thunderous applause yeah. and thunderous laughter and they crucify it cuz they're like you you're not gonna get me you may have manipulated all this audience but i'm above it and they do it time and time again with anything and you can see when things are super subtle and they feel like they can find it and they feel like they can champion it they get behind it them yeah i agree it is and i I tell you to your hand you it look you moved me yeah specifically the way you wanted me moved in the movie yeah and and every move you made you feel you go oh wow holy that just happened and that's what pisses them off and and them honestly yeah it's a it's it's a it's been a struggle for me my entire career um I've made films that I thought were really special films that were like tepidly warm review, never better than that. My TV show, which now wins awards and everybody's nominated for things, the critics have hate it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's, which is still strange because we're getting the validation of awards and stuff, and they're still coming after it. It's hard because on this movie, it, it's going to balance out. But I struggle. You know, you struggle with that because it's just all fucking impossible. But like, it's I do impossible. agree. I you do can't. agree. You can't because agree. if the only way, the yeah. o- look, the, yeah. look, the only way to get them yeah. is if they feel they can. Yeah. They feel they can find it yeah. and it's impossible because you're such a well-known yeah. writer director now yeah well tell walk me through how marty and wick got the movie and how they got it made yeah. and, and also a b-side to that question is i I'm, I'm sure you think they're great producers they are yeah. what do you think makes a great producer and what do you aspire to as you're producing your your tv show yeah i mean i think um the way the path of the film was um, Marty, I specifically, and Wick, but Marty primarily, I'd known since I started my television career. And he was always, he's a, he's a larger than life kind of personality. He's a wonderful guy. And he had always been, more than anything, such a champion of mine before I was anything. And in a way that was just, you know, when a movie, you know, wouldn't turn out well, he would write me a note saying, like, I love the movie. I, I, even if he didn't love the movie, he would say, like, um, you're going to be your next movie is going to be great. You know, he was always so supportive and had such belief. Um, the path of this one was there were a couple of like smaller studios and financiers once the script went out that were the real players for it. Film Nation, who can independently finance things and is so filmmaker friendly, were like, we're going to let you make this movie for the right budget, however you want. And Aaron Ryder, who was the producer over there at film, kind of joined with Film Nation, was like very much from the very beginning on board. I also had this relationship with Marty and I felt that um, because I'd had films in the past and my films are challenging because they they live in a tweener space and nobody quite knows what to do. I wanted kind of all hands on deck and they had always liked Marty and had a good relationship with him. So I was able to say, I also want to bring in a second producer who I've had a history with too. So we can just all be together and doing this collectively. So that's how Temple Hill and Marty and Wick came on board along with Film Nation. As to what makes a good producer, what I try to do, I mean, I just, um, it's such an important job, but it's also such a nebulous one because yeah. uh, it depends on, I've, I've, I don't need a lot of creative support. You know, I sometimes might like a sounding board and I don't just want a cheerleader telling me I'm great all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I'm kind of focused. I work very intensely with my DP on the front half and my editor on the back half. I think some movies and some directors require a producer who is very hands-on and is acting as a sensitive sounding board and creative sounding board for a you know a director who needs it. Um, Marty and Aaron on this particular movie were both there for me and made me, it kept me going. But also they were they're like it's like having two Doberman pinchers around your house when your house is getting broken right. into, and so it's it's protective and it's they're protecting the movie and they're protecting me and they're they're handling there was one day when i knew you know our film was 
expensive. It was a complicated film to pull off for like $13, 14000000 million, whatever we did. And I remember I was shooting some complicated stuff inside of a house. I have pictures of it on my phone. And I looked, and it was a nice day in New York, and we'd been shooting in the winter during a blizzard. It was actually a nice day. And in the backyard of this house in, like, Queens, all the producers were sitting on lawn chairs in a circle outside having a powwow. And I knew it was about, like, what the f*** are we going to do? The movie's going to be too expensive. But I had no – I'd been shooting the entire day, and I had no idea it was going on. And I never really heard what was the problem. They just said, we're, we're working on it. We're figuring it out. And then we never went over, you know. And, like, great. and then they had the ability to go, hey, Dan, like, you have an extra half day in Spain for this scene that, like, you've said in passing at times you could possibly cut cutting that half day is going to save the movie like it's time to cut the scene and when they say that to you i do it that's because you trust them i trust them and they haven't been f***ing with you the whole time and you know pushing you it's you know what it is exactly the same thing with your actor yeah a producer should say to a director hey man here's where we are here's what's happening here's where we're like in a little bit of trouble here's where you need to speed up a little bit if you can here's where you can slow down and be honest with people in the same way that you're honest with actors it would be everything would go so much better i just find that bad producers are like keep them in the dark communicating with the studio so they have feel like they have a job of not telling the director like i got this yeah and it just makes the whole thing not work very well i agree and in and now you're i mean you're one of the biggest showrunners in in the business how does that translate to television for how you run your show? Um, well, you know, television's similar. It's all similar because it's all just people, right. flawed human beings making stuff. I mean, the uh, the TV is ne- – I've primarily tread almost entire, yeah, entirely tread in network television since I started doing TV. I made two, three tele- – a bunch of pilots, many of which didn't get on TV, but were beloved pilots that never got made. And a couple of shows that lasted two seasons and were kind of critically well-received but didn't kind of land in a big way until before This Is Us. And they were always network shows. That process is so inherently broken um, that it actually is a big part of the reason why network television shows are all, all often so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was definitely fell prey to that numerous times in small and big ways. Um, so you become very defensive making a television show. As you get more experience, you're like, nobody's going to fuck with this because I've seen it happen too many times. Um, and so that's kind of what happened with This Is Us. Um, where I had a great relationship with the head of the network, who's kind of was a de facto, my de facto producer, because we didn't, you know, she was the person that makes it, and the studio I had a great relationship with, who were very protective. And so they said, like, we're going to let you go make this TV show how you want to make it. And there was very little process. And again, like Marty and Aaron, I trusted them when they said, hey, Dan, you've got to do this. Right. Hey, Dan, you've got to cut this. It didn't happen often, but when something was asked of me, I knew it was worthwhile because it, it needed to be right. done. Best day on set of your movie? On set? Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple come to mind. It's okay. Oscar, Oscar and Annette Benning did 40 pages of dialogue in one set, <laughs> in, one, in one scene, in oh, one shit. set over two days. That was the whole therapy scene. Wow. A big, a big framing device in the movie is Oscar in therapy with Annette Benning as his therapist. And we only had shot that in two days. It was 40, wow. 40 plus pages. And they were going like a stage play. And I was just moving the cameras. And we were watching Oscar Isaac act with Annette wow. Benning for two days. So oh, that that was amazing. day one and two of the film. Wow. Um, so that was really exciting. There's a scene in the film with Oscar and Olivia Wilde in bed um, 
where they're just kind of, where you feel I felt voyeuristically like I was watching a really healthy good marriage in bed because they were they had such great chemistry together and that was just a fun day hanging with two fun actors who I like as human beings right. who are great what's interesting about that is all of the production stills from anything that talks about your movie anytime you're talking about your wife or the 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 line of dialogue it says he loved her like a, a stalker yeah it's that picture yeah, that you just described yeah, in Is the that bed. picture of the two of them yeah. in bed together. It normally, looking, it normally looking up. looking up. It normally in a in a film makes me uncomfortable to almost have that kind of intimacy. There's something about them in this th- that scene in this film for me, and I'm too close to it. But you forget you're watching two actors in a movie. You feel like you're spying on a couple, and that's always really exciting. To that me. is exciting. The end of the film. There's a final. Then probably the highlight for me was the end of the film, which I was was the most important part of the film for me was the the final monologue of Laia Costa's character, who's this young Spanish actress who I found she She's made, great. she auditioned for me on tape. Um, she sent me every scene from the movie before I cast the role, and I just cast her without looking at another actress because of what she did in the last scene and filming that last scene was like very special because you could feel that she was tremendous and and it was important so if you can't just write a bar mitzvah comedy and then meet john lassiter right away yeah today given all the technology given everything that people have at their disposal and if they want to be a writer producer or director and and you could go back to new jersey and give yourself advice what would it be to get into this business um as a writer or in general in general um, the advice I always give is not always the most fun advice because I'm sure you get it. I get 15 letters now a day of people who are family, friends, kids want to be in sure. the entertainment industry. That's I, why I'm doing this podcast yeah, yeah. so I can just say, just listen yeah, to my podcast. podcast. I can't talk about it anymore. That's true. The best advice I always give is double and triple check with yourself that there's not something that's like a close second that you want to do for a living because if there is, you should probably take this path because this one is very hard and there's no amount of just hard work that can have, have you succeed in it. You need to be be talented and get very lucky and get opportunity as opposed to other professions where if you're smart and ambitious and hungry, you can succeed in the business. So if you have a close second, this one's probably not for you. That's not always the most fun advice, but I always say um, I think if you're a writer, you need to write. People who tell me, young kids who tell me they, they want to be a writer and they take their one shot at sending me a script and it's the only script they ever read written and they clearly don't know what they're doing yet. They haven't studied it and they wrote it. They finished it a week ago and they sent it. Those are people that are trying to um, – and that is to a degree what happened to me and how my career started, but it's why it's a poor lesson. Um those are people who are trying to scratch a lottery ticket and have a really cool job that could pay them a lot of money and not have to put on a suit every day. And you've got to do the work. Don't move to Los Angeles without having written a script. It's expensive out here It's or, or without having produced or made a short film if you want to be a director. It's expensive out here. It's hard. You need to probably live out here or in New York, but write some scripts at home while you're paying rent with by your family before you do and uh, write what you know and write what you and know. don't try to write a marvel movie just because that's no. what you think is selling right now because these are decisions that were made three years ago as yours yep. everything you have written has been some form of your life yeah write what you know and it'll be more authentic and and you'll you'll get noticed more quickly yeah i mean nothing that those letters those cover letters you get from young writers with a script about why this genre could work and the box office potential of the premise the bit that business is is long gone there is no idea in the world that one person can come in and say i have a great idea for a movie and you sell a script for a million dollars because people know that that's a big hit idea right. it, the, the ideas have all been done mm-hmm. you know so my thing is nothing spectacular if it is spectacular people go how can i get people my script how can i get people to read my script I go, if it's spectacular 
people are going to read your script and yeah. you're going to get discovered. So it doesn't, and it doesn't matter if it gets made. It doesn't matter what genre it is. It doesn't matter if it's completely unproducible and not something that's ever going to sell. If you want to make it in this business as a writer, write something that is truly, truly special. And I give you my word, like it will, you'll be discovered within three weeks. Yeah, and find some you didn't know. Your roommate gave yeah. it to somebody yeah. who was a junior yeah. manager, gave it to an agent yeah. who's still your agent now, who was a young agent at the time. Just you got to just be good. Yeah. Work hard, yeah, and just trust that if you sent it out there, it's you're going to be found. Yeah, I agree with you. The best gig is the best gig. My other real world, I try and give real world advice. I always say like, save up ten thousand dollars if it takes you five years before you move out to Los Angeles yeah. or New York to do it. I also say, um, I also say, uh, the best job. The two best jobs are that are realistic jobs, even though they're the hardest to get. Is it, this is specifically to writers? If you want to be a TV writer, try and get that writer's PA gig. It's the worst job on the planet. You spend all day getting lunches for writers, but in success, you get to move up a ladder and Tuesday, and it can start a career. The other best job is being an assistant for someone like you or for someone like me, and learning that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no path. Um, it's just very hard. I hate when I'm sent scripts from a young writer of a family friend and then I'm like a week later I write the back I'm like I am going to read it I love your mom please bear with me it's a busy time I will do my best and then I get back the email inevitably each time don't read that one yet I have a new version and you're like God come on you're killing yourself like you can't like and so write something good and stick with it and then go write something else good and keep trying and just keep writing yep um, directing is even harder. Producing is even harder. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how to advise when people say I want to be a producer. I'm like, you have to get a job with Todd. I mean, you well, have now to. you can say they can just listen to this podcast. Yeah, there you go. Listen <laughs> to the podcast. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you Thank so you. much. Good pleasure. luck on your movie. Thank you so September much. September 21st. I hope it's huge. But Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Producer's Guide. We're produced by Katie McEwen, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater. I want to answer all your questions about the business, so make sure to tweet me at Todd underscore Garner or use hashtag Producer's Guide on Twitter. See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. Download new episodes every Thursday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger. I used to host the Art of Charm podcast, but now it's time for something new. The Jordan Harbinger Show. Did you know you can be entertained and actually get a boost in your life at the same time? On this show, we dig into the superpowers of the world's most interesting thinkers and top talents. Then we deliver them to you right into your ears. But I get it. We're not all superheroes. That's why we give you their blueprint so you can live what you listen. After a thousand interviews, learning five languages, and getting arrested in a country that doesn't even exist anymore, I'm now more ready than ever to introduce you to The Jordan Harbinger Show. Listen free to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app.